and welcome to our latest patient safety podcast. Today we're focusing on the recently published Patient Safety Incident Response Framework, or PISA for short. So today's podcast is one of a two-part Ask an Early Adopter series in which we put your questions directly to our PSERF early adopters. So my name's Tracy Herlihy and I'm Head of Patient Safety Incident Response Policy within NHS England's National Patient Safety Team. And today I'm joined by my colleague Lauren Mosley, Head of Patient Safety Implementation in the National Patient Safety Team, as well as early adopters from West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust. And West Suffolk is a provider of acute and community care. And in this two-part series, in the second part, we will also speak with an early adopter from a mental health provider. So Lucy Winstanley, Head of Patient Safety and Quality, and Rebecca Gibson, Head of Compliance and Effectiveness, have kindly joined us today from West Suffolk to answer questions about their experience implementing the framework as part of our Early Adopter Programme. And we're super grateful to have them here with us today. Um, before we get started, I did just want to point to a number of resources that are already available um, on, on, on kind of our various platforms. So. If you're interested in learning about who our early adopters were, um, a list of all early adopter sites is available on our NHS England website. So if you just search for PSIRF, so P-S-I-R-F, you will be able to find the list of all organisations that tested the framework between March 2020 and April 2022, and whose feedback has been so important in shaping the new framework. And so listeners of the podcast might already be aware that we had our early adopter program evaluated and learning from that evaluation is available on our future NHS workspace. So it's a very in-depth report with a number of appendices and lots of great detail that we also use to inform the design of the new framework. And that's available for anyone should they wish to go and have a read through that. And um, finally, also on our future NHS workspace, there are various resources that our early adopters have kindly shared with us. So this includes examples of patient safety incident response plans that they created during the early adopter program. Although noting that the template has changed quite significantly based on their feedback. So the plans that we have available might look quite different to the template that we have available now. Um, and we also have an example business case from one organization that was successful in securing further investment in their patient safety incident response team, which may be useful to take a look through. So I'd just like to say a huge thanks to those who responded to our request on Twitter for questions to ask our early adopters. It was a really popular post and we're hoping to get through as many of the questions today and as part of this two part series. So let's get started. So the first question that I have came through Twitter from Ken Lowndes and I'm actually going to come to you Lauren to answer this question if you don't mind. So this question yeah. um, was who decided that the current SI framework was no longer fit for purpose? What a great question. Um, it was there was no one person. Um, timing is everything with these things, isn't it? And I think we in the national team um, reached a point where we were getting lots of queries and questions and concerns raised from patients and families and, and, and staff as well about their experience of the serious incident investigation process not being um, the experience that you know we would hope for or the one that was described within the framework itself they were describing quite a, a closed and, and defensive process um, you know people feeling shut out and unsupported and it, it just wasn't achieving what it what it really set out to do and that 
we we were hearing that at the same time as some pretty high profile national reports and inquiries that were going on. So I remember, and this is going back to 2015, so you're testing my memory here, um, the um, Public Administration Select Committee, um, they held a, um, a meeting um, and um, published a report investigating clinical incidents in the NHS. And that talked about this, um, you know, defensive culture that was um, pervading the NHS, I think, for one, for, um, was how it was described. And that that report was the report that recommended that um, what it is now, the Healthcare Safety Investigation Branch, was established. So that revealed lots of the, the problems that I think organisations were facing in trying to manage serious incidents. There was also reports by the CQC at the time who had looked at a um, processes around serious incident management and had reviewed a number of serious incident investigation reports as well uh, and they were you know finding similar things that these were generally um, quite defensive documents that weren't getting to the system issues that were really um, leading to the incidents that were happening in the first place so it, it, it felt like this serious incident process that everybody was working desperately hard to try and manage and investing so much resource in had been turned into just that. It was a process, it was very bureaucratic and it wasn't helping organisations to well, firstly support and involve the people that had been affected by the incident itself. But then what we were finding at the end of that process as well is that was there were lots of disparate action plans um, and organisations were struggling to manage that and to achieve real change and improvement as a result of the efforts that they put in throughout the investigation process. So, you know, it, it, it just wasn't meeting needs on, on several fronts and that triggered a public engagement event that the National Patient Safety Team led to try and explore these problems and why they were occurring. Um, so yeah, uh, sorry, long answer, but no, no one person, lots of voices um, coming together at the same time to shift our thinking. Um, and I know there's been a lot of change since 2015 as well. Um, you know, people even working with the system they've got in a more productive way. But I think it was um, those voices that really triggered the change. That was really helpful. Thanks, Lauren. Um, I'm going to come over. So I've tried to group the questions together in different themes. So we have a couple of questions coming up now about the transition phase. So this is the, the first phase as part of the preparation guide that we've kind of developed to help organisations to transition to PSERF. And I'm going to come to you, Rebecca, and we have a question. This one's from our launch webinar, um, which states that in relation to the orientation phase, so this first phase, who was on your team? How did you create or allocate time to read and reflect? What was the structure of your team? Did you break the work into work streams or projects, et cetera, et cetera? Okay, so I'll try and sort of break those down. So we we were an early adopter across our whole region. So it was Suffolk and Northeast Essex. So it wasn't just our organization, it was our colleagues to the east and down to the south. So our team in terms of PSERF was wider than one organization. But from a West Suffolk perspective, myself and Lucy co-led, probably because we were the sort of the two people who are in charge of those kind of things within patient safety. So Lucy, as the head of patient safety, is 
basically responsible for the doing of patient safety, whereas my role is more sort of the strategy policies and, and also the numbers side of it. So we were the natural project leads and actually having two people project leading rather than one, I think was very beneficial because you can throw ideas off each other and have different skills. But the other key thing we had was executive buy-in from the very beginning. So our executive team were signed up to this principle and they wanted to know about it all very soon at the very beginning. So that read and reflect wasn't just for us as leads. It was that the whole exec team getting an understanding of it. And that was really useful. And then a pandemic came along, so we had a bit of a pause, but that did give us time to really, really read and reflect. So we, we the extended time to really understand it, I think is quite important. It isn't one day we read it and the next day we knew what we were doing. It did give us that time. Um, so in terms of a structure, we had a task and finish group that sort of oversaw it as a project. But to be honest, that was really a sort of how do you get engagement? So we had people from our divisions that would come along and that helped us in terms of the what do you want in your year one piece up more than probably a, overseeing a project. But it meant we'd got people from medicine, from surgery, from community, but we'd also got doctors, nurses, allied health professions, we'd got our patient experience lead. So it was a coming together of leads for different areas to understand the concept of it. And again, I think getting different people who might have a bit of an input in understanding it early on was definitely beneficial. So we didn't really have sort of individual work streams and projects. It was just, we could have did it and all in, but thinking back actually, that possibly meant some of the things we didn't really achieve at the beginning, had we done a bit more patient engagement, staff engagement, IT systems, it, that probably would have been more beneficial. So one thing I think we would say is that breaking down sort of a proper sort of project approach, although we didn't do it, I think if I'd gone back in time, actually, I think I would have done it. So I mean, in a nutshell, that's kind of the answers to those bits of the question, hopefully. No, that's that's really helpful. Thanks, Rebecca. And I, I think um, when we developed that preparation guide, it was absolutely based on kind of stuff that our early adopters had done and had felt would work well, but also stuff that they'd wished they'd done to, um, have, you know, looking back um, at, at kind of where they'd been and where they, how they'd got there. Um, so uh, many, much of the stuff in that preparation guide may not have been what our early adopters have done, but more based on their recommendations. Um, so I have another question about the transition phase. I'm going to come to you, Lucy. This one's also from our launch webinar. Um, and so this one talks about communication teams. So they imagine that communication teams were really important um, to the early adopters. It feels like a lot of information to share with staff, patients, families and so on. So what teams did you lean on internally to support your transition to PISA? Thanks, Tracy. Um, well, most notably our communication team. Uh, as Rebecca said, you know, we were a multidisciplinary kind of workforce coming together uh, when we were implementing PISA. So we did use the people we had around us um, in what I called the trickle effect, um, in terms of getting the message out around PSERF. We wanted people to understand what it was, um, that we were going to pilot this project and that it would feel different. So we did lean on the people that we had in our group to share that information, but we did have a quite a structured comms cascade um, to try and reach lots of different levels um, to explain what we were doing 
it was very hard to have a kind of a robust communication plan because we weren't entirely sure what it was going to look like. All we knew was that there was a change um, and we wanted just to bring as many people along on that journey as possible. So it's still evolving now and um, you know PSURF is a journey and um, it's not something that we've we've started and finished it's something that we're still on so our comms continue continues now. Great thanks Lucy and we we um, nationally as well and um, based on kind of working for our early adopters we've started to put we have a kind of a, a small comms pack available on the future NHS um, workspace but we're also currently in the process of going back to look at that to see if we need to update it to help organizations through those um, various phases so hopefully that's a benefit to those who weren't part of the early adopting adopter program can kind of learn um, the benefits of kind of um, you having the early adopters kind of feed into the work that we're doing now um, so I'm going to move on to a different theme of questions um, the next theme kind of talks about kind of changes in how we've kind of we respond to patient safety incidents now that you guys are under under working under PCEF. And we had a question from Twitter um, via Twitter from Sue Deakin. And this one um, asks, so how will green incidents be handled differently? Um, this is where the most learning and improvement can come to reduce more harmful incidents. And I'm going to come to you, Rebecca, but I was also hoping you might be able to talk a little bit about what green incidents are for those who may not know what they are. OK, so first, so green incidents. So on most risk management systems, incidents are categorised by severity or degree of harm. And the general principle is that a red incident is something that has come to, is either severe or catastrophic harm. And that usually means death from a patient safety perspective. A moderate harm is an amber. So the way I sort of explain it in a non-technical way to, if someone asks me is, a moderate and a major harm may both have a serious effect, but usually that moderate, the patient will recover from it, whereas within a major, you would expect there to be some kind of permanent ongoing harm, which is not strictly the, the technical definition, but I find it explains it a bit better. And then your green are your minor harm or no harm at all or near miss. And I think actually this question is a really good one because this, this is the when I read the original piece of this is the reason why I thought it was a great thing. This this one thing was probably my number one favourite bit of the whole piece of is just because a patient, this patient hasn't come to severe harm, so it's not a red incident, doesn't mean that what happened couldn't happen to the next patient. And that might be a near miss or it might just be that it's a minor harm this time because that particular patient was a robust 26 year old with lots of sort of resilience in them but had it been a 78 year old gentleman that same incident would have been major harm so first of all the if you pick the type of incident you want to do a more in-depth rather than the severity you can pick up a green incident or an amber or a red it's the subject you're interested in but also you don't just have to do one of these complex patient safety incident investigations if you've got a pattern or a theme of greens greens reds and ambers you can say what are these different approaches and sometimes a different approach for something where you've got a high volume actually what you want to do is look at these in a different way and we've got there's various different ways you can do it one of the things we've looked at, at our trust is this idea of bringing audit into the mix because auditing a large number or even a reasonable number of incidents of a certain type against standards is another really great tool to look at it and 
I could talk, basically, I could talk all day about why green incidents are better under PCEF. So I said, you probably want to stop me at this point. But genuinely, I think if I was to say the one thing that is the best thing of PCEF is this response to your greens, not just your reds. Great. Thanks, Rebecca. And uh, keeping in a similar theme around changes in responses, I'm going to come to you, Lucy. Um, and this one came, came from our launch webinars. Um, and it says the biggest change is from the detailed investigation of every single serious incident to theme. So it kind of builds on what Rebecca was saying um, and the systems approach. How have you made this a new approach rather than just adding to previous approaches? What did you manage to stop doing and how did individual incident response need to change? OK, so um, I think the biggest change was how we approached serious incidents. So as Rebecca has, has said, um, we, you know, we still use our risk management system. We still consider every incident that's reported and we still have to use the grade of harm or perceived harm as almost a trigger for next steps. However, we don't need to do a certain response for a certain grade of incident. So we can, as an organisation, determine where we want to allocate our resource in terms of a comprehensive investigation versus a concise investigation. Um, so we haven't taken anything away um, and that we're not reviewing serious incidents because we still will do that. However, our our response in terms of investigation has changed. And I think that's really where the plan, the PSERP, comes um, into its main. So for us, that's our governance document, essentially. So and as we were preparing to go live with PSERP, for me, it, it, there was nervousness, I'll be honest, around, you know, we had a structured framework. We knew it wasn't particularly good, as Lauren described earlier. We knew that our resource was in the wrong place. We weren't learning. We weren't sharing. And um, however, we had a framework, and it and it felt comfortable because we knew that everything would, in terms of governance, be done as it should be done. And um, so we haven't changed in terms of not reviewing serious incidents. We have changed that we wouldn't necessarily do a comprehensive investigation for all serious incidents, but we still are reviewing it, undertaking a proportionate response that's going to give us the most learning. And that this doesn't mean that we wouldn't have conversations with patients and families that have been involved in serious incidents. It would just mean that they might not get a full RCA document at the end. Um, but including them and involving them in the discussions about our decisions about what is the most proportionate response has been really key as well. I'm not sure if I've answered that, have I? I think that's great. Thank, thanks very much, Lucy. And, and we have some questions coming up on family involvement, so we'll get an opportunity to elaborate a little bit more on that later on. The last question in the changes in responses theme came from Twitter and this one's from Sarah Hemsley and it's quite a specific question but I know you have a particular interest in this area Rebecca so the question from Sarah is how do you report slash monitor deteriorating pressure ulcers? So pressure ulcers is another good example of how the SIF versus PSERF enables better review so very, very briefly for those who aren't experts in pressure ulcers, and I should say I'm not a clinical expert at all. I've just worked a lot with our tissue viability team in the past. 
pressure ulcers are categorized category two category three unstageable and category four and unstageable is this which is what they've got there is this kind of we're not entirely sure whether it is a category three or four sometimes you just need to there's some lovely debridement of wounds etc i'm sure all the clinicians on the call will say i'm not explaining it properly but in the past a category four pressure ulcer would be red so it would need an SI report. A category three would be moderate, so it would need duty of candor, but not necessarily a full report. And then category two would be green, so you just report it. What we can do now is look at thematic reviews of our pressure ulcer incidents. We can, because we're hospital acute and community, we can look at different types, so community acquired, as in look working, appearing in our community, and that deterioration question. So this idea that you might be admitted to hospital or you might be seen by one of our community teams with a category two pressure ulcer and it deteriorates over time and becomes a three or becomes an unstageable becomes a four. We don't have to say because of the grading you have to do this model. We can say is there an opportunity to do a review such as an after action review which works quite well with some of our pressure ulcers. We can say we'll have an audit of pressure ulcers in our medical wards to see if there's any learning, to see if there's any thematic pictures about, say, nutrition scoring. So it just gives a greater flexibility and allows our tissue viability team to focus much more on, OK, so this is what we found. What are we going to do about it? If nutrition scoring is coming up as a theme, let's look at some education and learning on on must scoring. And it's just that that sort of wider application of the what you're doing about it rather than spending all the time writing a complex report about one individual gentleman or lady who's got one sacral category four and then not linking it up to another lady in another area who's got a heel category four. It's just that thematic of bringing it together. Thanks Rebecca. So the next um, questions um, because you um, are an acute provider and you have maternity services, um, there are a couple of questions about maternity that came through um, on Twitter. So the first question, I'm actually going to come to Lauren. Um, this was from Lisa via Twitter, and she was asking, how does PSERF meet the Ockenden requirements for SIs? Yeah, thank you, Tracy. It's a question that's cropped up quite a bit, actually. Um, and not surprisingly, because, I've, you know, the Uckington report and various other reports have really put a spotlight on incident management, particularly serious incidents, because that's the framework we're working under now. M many of the kind of the findings and the recommendations that Donna Uckington and her team made are, are supported by PSERF. So the, the need for greater involvement and engagement that's recognised and also in relation to board accountability. So. In the Ockenden report, there's an expectation that serious incidents are seen and signed off by the board. And actually, this was a really important part of PSERF as well in terms of where the accountability sat for the quality of incident management or incident response, I should say. So under, under PSERF, it is actually the board who is who are accountable for signing off patient safety incident investigations and for checking the quality of learning responses generally. So they should be far more cited on, on the process. And I think that fits quite nicely with what um, the Uckingdon report recommends. I know there are a, a few specific um, queries about certain recommendations, for example, for external review of, of reports and how that's achieved under PSERV and how we support recommendations and other expectations of um, you know, 
maternity must do's for want of a better word. So we're working through through those now. And I think we had a really helpful meeting recently with our national and maternity leads. And I know Rebecca and Lucy were with us, so that was massively helpful. But I think there are a few things that we need to translate for maternity in terms of how we move from an SI world into a PSERF world and take the, the recommendations and the intention of some of the national reports with us so that they still deliver um, on, on the aims and objectives that they set out to in the first place. But I think that's going to be work in progress over the next few months. Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, lots of um, work to do there. And, and this is kind of off a, um, we had a, a, a meeting recently with kind of the regional um, leads, the chief midwives and so on. So there's um, there's much that we can still do to support maternity. And we're going to be planning to do that over the next six months or so. Um, so but just to bring it back to West Suffolk and to you, Lucy, um, a question from Twitter from Ruth Anna. Um, just interested to hear in any experiences that you guys have had um, using um, PSAF for maternity. Thanks. So um, we've tried to be as collaborative as possible, really, um, recognising that maternity does have some external scrutiny that it needs to fulfil. Um, it is a very safety conscious uh, specialism. Absolutely. Um, and really, as Lauren says, it's about supplementing um, what they do already with um, some of the principles of PSERF. So not having to um, not have to wait for a serious incident to occur to put some energy and resource into understanding why and focusing improvement work as a as a result. So in terms of our journey with PSERF and our maternity services, they were very much part of our implementation group. Uh, we considered, as we did for lots of different specialisms, what their top risks were as part of our initial data collection. We also use that kind of that in, that sense of you know what are you worried about what what concerns you what what can we do to to learn more about these issues so that was very much a trust wide collective which included maternity part of that they um they the the, the team did want some structure because we recognise that PSF is very flexible and as I said you know having that plan was something that I. I really drew on because actually I, I wanted to make sure that we were undertaking good governance as we should. So we, um, our maternity team developed their own plan, essentially. So they they were really quite clear about incident management um, for their department. And we supplemented that as part of our own plan. And that seemed to work quite well because it gave them very clear guidance. Um, and also structure during that first year um, as early adopters. As we've developed and grown and matured with PSERF, actually those lines, that there are less lines there, there's less rigidity because actually the principles of PSERF are emulating now through our maternity departments. It is about focusing your resource. Um, it is about the governance structures, but it's also about that accountability, as you spoke about, Lauren, as well. So making sure that we're fulfilling our external requirements, but also doing what's right for for our our patients in our maternity services. That's really helpful. Thanks, Lucy. Um, I'm going to stick with you, Lucy, but I'm going to move on to another topic. And we've already talked a little bit around um, family involvement. 
Um, this question came via Twitter from Kathy Scorer, I think. Um, and she asked, can you talk about how patient or next of kin involvement has changed under PSERF? So I think in its broadest sense, PSERF gave us the opportunity to look at instant management as a whole. And part, you know, a really key part of instant management is, is the patient and the families that have been involved in the incidents. So for us, it's about the conversation. We have it early, um, you know, and we're open and transparent. So it's not about um, staff feeling worried about level of harm or the process. It's about actually let's have a conversation. This has occurred. And what do we need to do next? What do we need to do for you as staff members? But also what do we need to do for our patients, families that have been involved in these incidents? So really it has helped shift our culture, um, our safety culture in terms of recognising that when things don't go as we want them to go, actually we just need to be open and honest about that. And we need to bring everybody that was involved as part of the next process and journey. So um, in terms of our instant management process, it's one of the four kind of key questions that we ask when we consider a variety of grade of incidents is, you know, what do we need to do in terms of fulfilling duty of candour and also supporting the patient and relatives that have been involved in this incident? And also what do we need to do for our staff? So we have that, we have that conversation on a weekly basis as, as at our instant meeting, and it really has kind of helped shift the the focus of the meeting and um, it isn't about you know whether something is graded as as red or not it's about actually this has happened and, and what do we need to do next about it so we've also recognized as well that actually bringing our patients and families as part of that investigation journey regardless of what the response is is really key as well so we do have patient safety incident investigators in the team who undertake our patient safety incident investigations, and they are very in tune with um, with the families and patients and actually will have very regular contact as part of an investigation. And that's something that is different for us under the SIF. We would undertake our duty of candor conversation and then we would deliver a report at the end actually now it feels very much like our patients and families are part of the journey with us and it, you know, it, it's really key insight that they give us as part of the investigation process and not only are we doing that at PSII level but actually because because that's sort of trickled down again into the patient safety team actually we're doing that as part of our patient safety reviews we're doing that as part of our our after action reviews as well so it is um yeah, really has helped shift our focus, essentially. That's great to hear. Thank, thanks, Lucy. And I, and I also liked it when you were talking about kind of patients and staff as well, because the guidance that we have for PSERF kind of covers, you know, we describe those who've been affected by patient safety incidents, which may be the family in the broader sense, but also kind of staff as well. And since you were talking about um, tools and kind of um, and so on, we and kind of different, um, you weren't talking about tools, but talking about different um, response methods after action reviews and so on. I, I do have a question specifically about that which came in through um, Twitter and this one's from Natalie Davies and she was asking and um, which tools from the toolkit do you tend to use and when and which one have proved to be the most beneficial? 
Okay, so obviously we use our PSII for our top risks that we've identified on our PSERP um, as a must do, and they are undertaken by our independent investigators, which has again been a, a real shift for us and our team. Um, somebody having that dedicated time and resource to undertake that detailed investigation using a systems based approach um, has has really changed for us from the SIF. Um, we've also drawn a lot on the after action review. Um, we've really found that beneficial to have that timely response to an incident, a, a roundtable discussion, which is as multidisciplinary as possible. Um, and actually that's really helped alleviate some of the burden from our staff in terms of investigation uh, and reporting. And um, so we have, we do use the after action review. We were fortunate as early adopters because the National Falls um, audit had changed their methodology in terms of um, how we would investigate falls. So we adopted their program for our falls management of debrief and after action review. And we translated that across to pressure ulcer management as well. So that's something that has changed and embedded for us. Um, we do use a patient safety review, so a concise document where um, we consider that to be a proportionate response. So where we want to understand the system, but actually it doesn't meet PSII on our PSERP, we would undertake that, um, that review. And that's been useful as well for external stakeholders. Um, we also use a timeline and understand at that point, actually, if we need to do any further, or if we've generated enough learning at that point. Um, I think those are the main ones we draw on, apart from audit. Sorry, I've missed audit. And actually, we're very keen to, to promote patient safety audit where there are sort of high volume, low level harm incidents. And actually, we're embarking on a programme with our medication safety officer in terms of looking at high risk medication and actually let's let's take an audit approach um, to these medication incidents rather than sort of local investigation at every uh, in, in different areas. Actually, let's look at it organisationally and understand where key learning is. Thanks, Lucy. And I, then moving on then to another category of questions. Um, this one is around measuring improvements, came in from Twitter via Sarah Everett. And Sarah asked, how are learning actions tracked so that oversight is not lost? Then I'm going to come to you, Rebecca, for that one. OK, thanks. So what we've identified very clearly from our patient safety incident investigations is there's almost there's two types of. They're not I wouldn't call them necessarily actions. You have those immediate safety actions that undertaking the investigation and working with the clinical teams, something's identified that said, you know what, we should just do that. And that the team will do that at the time. And so that's what we would call an immediate safety action. But these are the kind of things, it's a smart action, but you can record it on our Datix is our risk management system. So against that specific incident, we can just record an action that says, we will do this. So that might be, we will purchase a different type of line. So it's very clearly smart. You can say it's been done and by capturing it on Datix, you can then, if you want to, you can go back in time in the future and check that you're still doing it, but it is clearly a do X by X date by so-and-so. But obviously what we're really looking for are these wider and the term 
safety recommendation I think is what we've started to use but then it's it's more of these these sort of areas for further improvement and this idea that your PSII doesn't come up with answers it comes up with this this is where we should look into and see where we can come up with improvements and we've got a we've got a QI system in our organization that enables us to record QI projects but what we're doing is we're using that system life QI to capture those areas for further Im improvement and that allows us to we've got them somewhere recorded but obviously some of these are not simple things to address but what we don't want to do is lose what they are so that that gives us that sort of almost record keeping of those those two different types and then we've recently in the last sort of three to four months introduced a group our safety improvement group which is led by our associate medical director for patient safety so she chairs a meeting that almost receives the product of those areas for further improvement so they can have some conversation about how can we translate this an area we need to improve into actual improvement projects that's quite in its infancy so I would say that we're building up subjects we aren't necessarily at this point in time having lots of results of those but what we aren't doing is losing them and the other thing obviously it enables us to do if an incident comes along and we say hang on a minute that sounds familiar in the past you'd have had to have just written another SI report regardless because that's what it was but now we can say well this actually is another example of something that matches that area we've already identified so you've got you've got greater learning but what you haven't got to do is do a further investigation and that can work really well with a duty of candor conversation you can say yes this has happened and we're very sorry it's happened and actually we're looking to do an improvement project on that subject and then if the person wanted to know more about it they can but equally we're reassuring them that we are looking into it but we don't have to write a separate report for them which will tell us the same thing so I think we're we're at the beginnings of that. I wouldn't say we've solved it yet, but we're putting in place systems to try and move that on. That's great. Thanks, Rebecca. And I, I remember working really closely with um, some of your patient safety incident investigators um, when we were developing our safety action development guides. And it's so it's just really great to see kind of the ideas being reflected in kind of the processes that you're developing at West Suffolk and um, that were reflected in the in the safety action development guide, too. So that's really that's really helpful. I think we'll leave it there for today. Um, just to say thank you so much to you, Rebecca and Lucy, for being so open and giving up your time again um, to help us kind of um, spread the word about PSAF and have some questions answered. And it's so much more useful um, coming from people who've actually been out there and implemented the framework. So we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Um, so if, if listeners are, um, are out there kind of still looking to find out more information about PSAF, the best starting point is visiting the NHS England website, which you can find by simply Googling PSIRF, P-S-I-R-F. Um, and also just to recommend everyone for updates on PSIRF to keep an eye on Twitter, where we often post updates. So um, to follow us on Twitter, you can use the handle at PTSafetyNHS. And you can also access a range of resources and discussion forums on the PSERF section of our NHS Patient Safety Future NHS workspace. And thanks everyone for listening. Mm -hmm.